Let's uh, open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Sorry I wasn't here last week. I had uh, my son's football game. It's the first of the season, so I was there with him, but usually you're going to be on Tuesday, so that's why um, I was there yesterday, but that's why I was absent last week. Um, have you ever been at a restaurant with your family and your parents say, okay, they, 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 they wave to the waiter and they, they say to the waiter, yeah, can you bring me the check, please? And then the waiter tells your parents, well, actually, you know, somebody in your table already paid. You're like, whoa, okay. Maybe it's a family birthday, a family gathering. Maybe somebody there did it. How would that, how do you think that makes your parents feel when, when that happens? Good, pretty okay. Hey, that's pretty nice. Somebody invited me to this nice dinner and stuff. Now, what if it happened the other way? What if you were with your family and it was an expensive dinner and you call the waiter and the waiter comes and says, well, somebody already paid your, your meal. And you're like, what do you mean? It's just us four. Who, who did that? It's a complete stranger. You don't know who he is or she no allegiance, no familiarity, familiarity. You don't know the person. How does that one make you feel? See, one is your family, so you kind of expect it. Like, man, you know, one one of my uncles is going to pay for it, or one of my aunts is going to pay for it, right? But this one is unexpected. You think, you know, you ate the food, you ate the expensive dessert, you you ordered the expensive steak. It only makes sense that who pays it? You pay it, right? But when somebody else pays it, two things can go through your mind. The first one you can say, well, finally, you know, I'm so great. People finally recognizing who I am. Yes, they paid for my meal. Or the other one can be, man, I, I don't deserve this. I don't really deserve somebody paying this meal for me. When it comes to having a bill, we have an immense bill to pay to the Lord, okay? This bill is huge. And when I, talk, when I say huge, I mean infinity type. Like, it's a bill that is so costly that we will never be able to pay it. Why do we owe this bill? Well, because we have sinned when the Lord said not to. And this bill has to be paid. Because the Bible says it has to be paid in Romans 6.23. The Bible says, for the wages of sin are death. Some people think that they can pay this bill to God by being a good person. Or performing good deeds. But you see, we will learn today that this bill of sin has already been paid for by our sovereign Christ the King. He paid this bill with his own blood. We can do nothing to earn it. It was all done based on God's love and mercy and for His glory. And it's, it is finished. It is done. It is paid for. So how do I know this? How do we know this? How do we know the fact that Jesus' blood is sufficient for salvation? Today we will learn about how His death gave us direct access to the Father, and we will see a sign that secures this, that lets us know, yes, this sacrifice is enough. 
Let's read together God's Word. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 56, the Word of God says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is right when Jesus yields his spirit to the Father and he dies. Right when he dies, this happens. This is what we leave off on, on verse 51. Verse 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Our last lessons, we focus on Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at all the events that occurred on Friday of the Passover, Good Friday. What we know about as what we know it today to be is we first learn about Judas' remorse. Not his repentance, but his remorse. We saw how Pilate questioned Jesus after accusation over accusation, and we saw that Jesus kept silent. We went over how the people chose Barabbas over Jesus to be sentenced to crucifixion. We learned about the other events that took place during the first three hours of that morning. The scourging, the mocking, the beating, the spitting, and the cross-bearing. Last Wednesday, Matt taught us on the actual crucifixion of Christ and how the soldiers, the religious leaders, and the thieves continued to mock him. And how do they do that? By gambling his clothes. By telling him, if you are the king of the Jews, come down and save yourself. Show us the sign. By even quoting scripture to him is how they mock him. On Sunday... Brandon went over the dreadful moment when Jesus was forsaken by his father and how he cried out with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. Guys, I know that these have been tough lessons. They've been convicting lessons because they've felt and they've dealt with the suffering and death of our Lord Christ. And if you haven't felt the heaviness of it, I pray that tonight that you do. I pray that you feel convicted by his word tonight. I pray that you see that at the end of the day, all you have is Christ. There's no most beautiful song that we could have sung tonight that encompasses everything we're going to learn about tonight. All you have is Christ. You have nothing. On your own merit, you have nothing. All we have is Christ. And we're going to delve into that tonight. Today, we'll specifically, we're going to look at three scenes that followed immediately after Jesus' death on Friday before he was taken down from the cross. Three scenes that happened immediately after he died and before they take him down from the cross. We're going to talk about scene number one, the veil is torn, which is verses 51 to 53. Then we're going to look at scene number two, Gentiles converted, verse 54. And lastly, we're going to look at faithful women, verses 55 through 56. 
Today's theme is simple. And it's so profound. Jesus is the only way to God and is forever compassionate. Jesus is the only way to God and and is forever compassionate. We're going to look at how He is the only way to God. And we're going to look at His compassion even as He dies and He offers this salvation to all. Let's begin with the first scene that occurred immediately after Jesus' death. The veil is torn. Verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is a veil? It's a curtain. A thick, heavy, hanging drape used as a blind, especially referring to the curtain of dividing the sections within the tabernacle, within the temple. What happened to this veil? It was torn in two from top to bottom. Torn. The verb here is used as to divide by the use of force. Tear apart. Tear off. So, why is this important? Why did all the gospel writers, except one, John, he didn't mention the veil, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they mention that this veil is torn. Why? What's the implication of this veil being torn? Was this a spiritual terror? An actual terror? A spiritual Guys, there's a huge spiritual implication when it comes to the veil being torn. And that's what we're going to look at today. The veil was first found in the tabernacle. After the Exodus, and then in Solomon's temple. Pastor Dusty did a great job explaining this a couple of weeks ago, so let's go over it briefly. The tabernacle, what was it? It was a portable place of worship where Yahweh would dwell among his people. How do I know that? Well, Exodus 25, 8 tells us. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So this tabernacle, it has specific measurements and items that needed to be present every time it was taken down and rebuilt as it moved from place to place. And if we can just see that real quick, you'll see the entire tabernacle, and then we're going to focus on the little house in that, well, the little tent within the tabernacle, the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, and we're, next slide. So that is the holy of holies, and if you, if you can see where the ark is, that veil that separates the candle and the altar into the ark, that is the veil that we're discussing here. That is the veil that enters the holy of holiest section in the tabernacle. It was here in this tabernacle that the Levites performed sacrifices to God for the people. Go back. Back. You see in that area right there, outside the holy place, that is where those sacrifices occurred. It was also here that the yearly atonement was performed for the sins of the people. So once a year, the high priest, which had to be a descendant of Aaron, he would need to enter this place called the Holy of Holies, which is where, next, which is where the ark is. And he had to do specific rituals and ceremonies before 
going in there to be clean because if he didn't, he would die. He would die. So the place that separated the inside of the holy, holiest place was this veil. Look at how God describes this. Uh, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26. Open your Bibles to Exodus, or turn your Bibles to Exodus 26, verse 31 through 37. I'm not, it's not up there. You have to. There you go. Sorry. Exodus. I'm sorry. I put Leviticus. My bad. It's Exodus. Yes, Exodus. 26, 31 to 37. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with the cherubim, the cherubim, the cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, of four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony where there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. Verse 34. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Okay, so now we have an understanding of what this veil is and why it's there for. So now going back to Jesus' death and verse 51 saying that this veil is torn. The reason why the tearing of the veil is so important is because Christ, through His ultimate sacrifice, allowed us to be redeemed to the Father eternally. And this sacrifice did away with the old covenant and gave us direct access to the Father. Means that His sacrifice, His blood would be enough for us to be able to go before the presence of God without a mediator, without daily or yearly sacrifices. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 22 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So you might think, I just read the veil was torn. But when you read these words, don't overlook them. These are profound words. This is a profound action. The veil was torn, meaning we now have direct access to God through Christ, through His blood. That is why we sing, all I have is Christ. See, the Jews had to be atoned yearly for their sins. But Christ served as the ultimate atonement for His people Forever. Hebrews 9, 11-12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. 
he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This takes us back to our theme. Jesus is the only way to the Father and is forever compassionate. He's the only way. He is the only way to God, the Father. See, Brandon went over this last on Sunday. When Christ died, He justified us before the Father. He declared us innocent. He declared us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that what? We might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, this is the great news of that veil being torn. For those that believe and repent in Christ and put their faith only in Him for salvation, you have direct access to the Father forever. Not every day you say a prayer, not every day you recognize, you have direct access to God forever. Don't let this pass you by. Don't let this good news pass you by. What is this good news? That we're sinners. We have this huge bill to pay, and we can't pay it. We will never pay it. It is impossible to pay it. Christ lived a perfect life that you and me could never live. And He lived being God as a human, at the, at the hands of parents, at the hands of bosses, at the hands of sinful people. He was God and did this for humanity. And in, in His humanity, He suffered all that we've been learning about in chapter 27. Scourged, mocked, humiliated, beaten, spat on. Being forsaken by His Father. He did all that to pay the ultimate price. He paid that for our sins. And the Bible is clear that if you put your faith only in Christ for your salvation, that if you repent from your sins and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He rose from the dead on the third day, you too can have access eternally with the Father. Don't let a day pass by without this truth being solid in your heart. So that's why the veil is so important. It was a symbol that now was that used to sep- sins used to separate us from God, and it still does. But because we have Christ and His blood and His righteousness, we can you, we can come boldly before the Father. And as God, King, Maker of the universe, that righteousness also allows us to call Him Abba, Papa. That's amazing. Like, that's like, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what else does. You can come before God, the Creator, Holy, Holy Lord, Holy God, and also at the same time call Him Papa. What else happened after the veil was torn? The earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth shook basically signifies there's an earthquake. And the rocks were split because of the earthquake. Rocks were split. The word, the Greek word here for split, word split, is the same one that was used for torn. 
the same violent force that made these rocks split was the same violent force, is the same violent force that tore, tore the veil. So as Jesus died, the veil was torn in two. There's earthquakes that are splitting rocks. Why? What does the Old Testament tell us and the New Testament tell us about earthquakes and God? Well, what happened when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verse 18? Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. What happened when he, when he appears to Elijah on the mountain? First Kings 19.11 So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. There's also an earthquake on the day of his resurrection. Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Earthquakes symbolize as a symbol of God's power. And as Jesus the God-man dies, this power, this miracle is occurring so all can see. Jesus said who he, he is, who he said he would be. And he's validated, even in his death, by his father, like Brandon was saying, through all these miracles that are occurring as he dies and when he dies. What else occurred? Verse 52. The tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is another miracle that's occurring in this process. You have the miracle of the darkness at 12 o'clock p.m. You have earthquakes. You have the veil being torn. You have the dead being raised to life. Quick quiz. Who else raised people from the dead in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Yes. Elijah, okay. We have the widow of Zarephath's son. Okay, who else rose the dead? Elisha. We have the Shunammite woman's son. And also a dead man who touched Elijah's bones, like, <laughs> and he came to life, right? We have Jesus, right? The widow of nine sons. We have Jairus' daughter, and we have Lazarus. Also, Peter. Peter raised who? Begins with a D and ends with an S. No. But good, good clue. I mean, good, good answer. Dorcas. And who did Paul raise from the dead? Who did Paul raise from the dead? Eutychus. Remember the guy who fell from the, from the, yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. What do all these people that I just mentioned have in common? They were all what? Elijah, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Who were they? Prophets. 
And what does a prophet do? They're messengers of God. And how did God validate these messengers? Through the miracles that occurred, like raising people from the dead. Why does God do that? To validate his messengers. Telling the world, hey, whatever they say, believe it because it comes from me. And even now, here, as Jesus dies, and when he resurrects, all these things that are being resurrected is also a sign to validate Jesus as the Son of God. MacArthur states, Matthew points out that many, but not all bodies of the saints who had died were resurrected, making clear that this resurrection was divinely restricted to a limited number of believers. When Jesus died, their spirits came from the abode of righteous spirits and were joined with their glorified bodies that came out of the graves. This was full and final resurrection and glorification, making this miracle another foretaste of God's sovereign work during the end times and when all the dead in Christ shall rise. Verse 53 gives us a little bit more details of those that were resurrected. Verse 53 says, And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. The saints, these saints were resurrected when Jesus was resurrected. Even though it reads like when Jesus died, their tombs were open. And then they did not just stay there until Jesus rose and then got out of the grave. The way that it's written in Greek is basically he's saying this happened on Friday. But when Jesus resurrected, these saints also resurrected. And went inside the holy city and appeared to many. John Calvin states, I think it more probable that when Christ died, the graves were immediately opened. And that when he rose, some of the godly, having received life, went out of their graves and were seen in the city. As mentioned before, these saints also testified to the resurrection of Christ, to, the, to who he was. It, was. it would have been enough for Christ to be raised by himself from the dead. That, that should have sufficed everyone, right? But the Lord cannot leave any stone unturned, especially among those who needed to see, raise more to testify, raise more saints to testify of His great power of Jesus and the Son of, as the Son of God and eternal King. Now, you might have a lot of questions, like I have a lot of questions, right? Who were these saints? Were their bodies glorified? How long were they dead? Well, in order for it to make sense, their family members had to see them dead. So it can't be Abraham or Moses or, well, Moses, he's already up there. But you know what I'm trying to say here. What about, did they finish living their lives? Were they, did they live forever? Where, what happened, right? Are they going to resurrect again when, when Christ comes for his church? And look, like Brandon said on Sunday, thank you, Brandon, for making this happen. Look, our, we have finite minds, and we're not going to understand truly all the works of God. We just know this, and we can trust in the secret things belong to God, and we just focus on the revealed things. What is revealed? That this occurred, these saints were raised from the dead, for what? To magnify Christ and continue to validate Him as the Son of God, as God's messenger. We just leave it like that. When you're in heaven, if you want to dare to ask questions, go ahead. If you are a Christian, if not, sorry. All right. This concludes the first scene. We're going to move on to the second scene that occurs right after Jesus' death. 
Gentiles converted. Verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. What is the centurion? A Roman soldier in charge of commanding over a hundred soldiers. This centurion and his men, we're just going to speculate here for a little bit, okay? He could have been there when they went to arrest Jesus, when Judas betrayed him. He could have, they could have been there when they saw Jesus not defending himself against Pilate and all these false accusations. They could have been the one that scourged Jesus with the whip that had the metal piece or the wooden piece on, on, the, on the tip, causing all that suffering. Could have placed the actual crown of thorns on Christ. Could have put the robe on him to mock him, to ridicule him. Could have gotten the reed. Remember the reed that they gave him of wheat? They could have taken that wheat and that, that reed and struck him on the head with his crown of thorns. They could have chosen... Simon, hey you, come here and carry his cross. They could have they could have been the ones gambling the clothes. They could have been the one offering the drink to Jesus when he was thirsty, or the one with the gall and the bitter herbs. They could have been the one that nailed him to the cross. Literally, the ones that were nailing him to the cross. The one that could have been the one that pierced him on the side. And yet this centurion who could have done all these things comes to a moment of realization. Him and some others, because it's in plural, they were frightened. They feared God. What could have changed? How could they go from killing the Messiah to believing in the Messiah, being even a Gentile? They didn't even know. They didn't probably even see Jesus' miracles and his teachings. They probably never read the Torah or any of the prophecies of Isaiah. What could have made them change their mind? Could it have been Jesus' reaction to their actual punishment and saying, man, what does this guy have? Who is this guy that won't defend himself, won't strike back, won't say anything to us, and look how we're treating him? Could have overheard that conversation with Jesus and the two thieves. Who is this man that is forgiving somebody at their deathbed and promising them salvation? Could have been the darkness that came over at 12 o'clock. They're like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, I've, I've killed many before, but I've never seen it get dark. Or the earthquake. I've never seen it tremble and get dark at the same time, killing somebody the way we have. Could have been all those things combined. But we know two things. The first, we know that the Jews were there and they were also observing what the Roman soldiers observed. But we do know, because Luke tells us that instead of having the reaction that these that this centurion had with some of his soldier, fellow soldiers, instead of having the reaction of, this is the Son of God, let's praise Him, they rejected Him even further. Luke 23, verses 46 to 48. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, 
he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. That's a, a colloquial phrase of saying, well, sorry for that guy. Too bad. There was no repentance. There was no awe. There was no, this is the Son of God. What have we done? There is none of that. Well, his own Jewish people mocked him, and the prisoners made fun of him. These Gentiles saw more than that. They said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, the Greek here means, in truth, often tends to intensify. They're intensifying this, this, this truth. This is where we praise God for His plan of redemption. See, only He could save the vilest sinner. Like the thief on the cross, and maybe even this Roman centurion, who had just performed all these atrocities on Jesus. It just takes us back, takes us back to our theme. Jesus is the only way to God and is eternally compassionate. See, that compassion that Christ gives you, you don't deserve it. You don't earn it. The fact that you can believe in God, the fact that you want to believe in God, is not even yours. God gave that to you. His compassion gave that to you. In Acts, we have the first record of the first Gentile conversion. That's official. Right now here, we're speculating with the centurion. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 22, we know that Cornelius, he, he became a Christian. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. But I wonder if this centurion recognized Christ first in Cornelius. MacArthur and other commentators believe so. Basically, they said it was an answered prayer. Jesus was praying. Well, what did he pray? What did Jesus pray while he was being crucified, while he was being mocked, beaten, spat on? What did he pray? Anybody? Over here, anybody? What did he pray? What did he say? Forgive them for they know not what they do. And that, answer, and that prayer was answered in how? The thief. The centurion. They, don't know, they didn't know what they were doing until God opened their eyes and allowed them to see their condition of sinners in need of a Savior. And then when that happens, all they can do is praise Him and thank Him for who He is. Only God can save. Let's never think for an instance that we could ever choose God without Him giving us the power to do so. What does that mean? I thought that we were supposed to choose God, and but God chooses us. The twin truths of John chapter 3. God chooses those who are, will be saved. But at the same time, you also have to choose God and make Him Lord. How does that work? Parallel truths. Parallel truths. They go hand in hand together. We are called to believe in Christ. We are called to, be, to repent. But we also know that that can only happen with the power of God anyways. So we went over the first scene. The veil was torn. We went over just the second scene. Right after Jesus' death, Gentiles are converted. Now we will enter the third and last scene, the faithful women. 
verses 55 to 56. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. MacArthur states that the many could be maybe 12 women were there at that moment. And Matthew mentions that these women were at a distance, right? They were not too close, but were at a distance. Some of the commentators said they weren't at a distance because they were afraid. They were there with Christ. They, they were there from the beginning to end. They were faithful disciples of Christ. But they just saw the Lord suffering, and it just hurt them. So they were from far away. They were seeing what was going on. It's important to know that women also made an important part of Jesus' disciples. Just like women here, like you today, are important in the kingdom of God. These particular women mentioned here, they served him and the disciples from Galilee, from his hometown. They were basically the ones that probably, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, they were, they were the ones that probably did the administrative work of making sure everyone was fed and making sure we, everyone had a place to sleep. All this was serving the Lord. And we have plethora of examples in the Bible of Mary and Martha and other women who opened their house and used their finances to support the disciples and the ministry. And even though they were considered second-class citizens at that time, he still ministered to them, and he was still their pastor. He even gives them the honor to be mentioned as those who were there till the end of his death. He does that. Stuart Weber states, In a culture where women were largely seen and not heard, Matthew gave unusual honor to women. He mentioned women in Jesus' genealogy, and now here in the latter part, the closing narrative of this story, of this letter. This is another reason why he is eternally compassionate. He loved and died for, he loves and died all, for all, not just men, all. His salvation is for all. Who were these faithful women that Matthew wanted to mention and God wanted to honor for centuries to come? Matthew finds it important to mention them. Why? Well, we have, sorry, verse 56. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Why these women, and why is it important that he mentions them? Well, guess what? They would be the first eyewitnesses to his resurrection. So Matthew wanted to record this for the Roman Jewish readers at the time, and for us to know, like, these women were with Jesus through his death. They actually saw him as he entered the tomb, Matthew 27, 59, and 61, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And these women would be the first to see him as he resurrected. This is why he focuses on this. And you might say, why women? Why not men? Again, what does God use for his glory? Anything. And even though in this time period it was second class and people wouldn't believe it because it came from the mouth of a woman, not a man, God would use it because he's the one that saves. He decides how people will be saved and how this message will be delivered, regardless of what human thought and reason would believe at the time. 
This also tells you about their bravery. Where are the apostles? Except John. Nowhere to be found. One last detail on Jesus' awesomeness and His compassion. Among these women was Jesus' mother. Jesus also loved His mother in His divinity as well as His humanity. John does not record the tearing of the veil or the earthquake or the centurions, but he does, something, he does record something particular, that, something that the others don't. Let's read it. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Why do I say that he is eternally compassionate? As he's dying, as he's going to be with his father, as he's going to reign eternally in his glory, he's still thinking of the little things here on earth that we humans deem important, like family. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood because he's going to be forsaken by his father, but he's worried of his disciples. Stay awake, pray, be strong because of what's coming. How selfless. The fact that he's giving his life, yes, and, and that's amazing. But even to the smallest detail, the compassion that he shows, even to his death, to his earthly family. This is a selfless God that we serve. The God-man who died on the cross for our sins. So how do we apply this to our lives? It's simple. We just got to praise him. Seriously, we just got to praise God. Praise God for His one-time atonement. Atonement that will last forever. Think about it. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about ever losing your salvation or maintaining your salvation. Just as His death and resurrection was a one-time, or it's a one-time thing for you too. If you are His, you are His forever. Praise God for that. Praise God that He's the one that saves. MacArthur says it all the time. If given the opportunity to choose God, we would never. We would never. We're so involved in serving our own kingdom. Look how hard it is. If you are a believer in Christ and you struggle with selfishness and pride in serving your own kingdom, imagine if you weren't a believer in Christ. That's your life. That's what you live for. That's good. That's great. That's what you think is good or great, right? We will never choose God. Praise Him that He allows us to believe in Him and to put our faith in Him as it is a gift from God. Praise God that He loves all equally. For God, Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thank God that this is not just for the Jews. This is for all of us. Thank God it's not just for women, but it's all for women and men. Thank God it's not based on ethnicity or nationality. It's based on no merit. Nothing is based on His grace. Praise God for that. 
It's not there, but I put it here. Praise God for His compassion in salvation and in the little things of life. He is so awesome and loving that He cares. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who died on the cross for our sins. This is the God who made us righteous before the Father. And our mouths and our minds and our hearts should be filled with gratitude. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, we praise You. We praise You for Christ. All we have is Christ. All we have is His righteousness, His blood. We can never bring anything to the table, Father, for our salvation. We can never bring anything to the table for You to accept us more or less. If we are in Christ, when You look down upon us, You only see Christ. Thank You for that. Father, I pray that You can save those that aren't saved right now, Lord. I know You're powerful enough to do so. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Sanctify us in the truth. Allow us to always remember who we were before You. Let us praise Your name. Let us adore Your name always. Let us live our lives to honor You, to try to bring glory to Your name because of what You've done. It is in Christ's name we pray.